Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Thursday, the 16th of November, and coming up on the program, the dangers and advantages of Black Friday for consumers. Why the Chinese market is becoming increasingly attractive to investors, the Chief Justice under fire for remarks made about the former president, Human Rights Watch on the continuing Israeli bombing of hospitals in Gaza, and why a new tax incentive will help wildlife conservation. This leads our program. The Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution has expressed its concern over the Chief Justice Raymond Zondo's views on topics including the implementation of the recommendations of the State Capture Commission, judicial misconduct, as well as the pending prosecution of the former President Jacob Zuma. Dan Mafora is a senior researcher at CASEC. Dan, specifically, what aspects then of the Chief Justice's remarks do you find concerning and why? Hi, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so the first thing is his um, willingness to take that question uh, in that interview about the pending um, prosecution of the former president um, and his speculation about whether or not, even if he was tried or convicted, um, he would be uh, or would he would be the beneficiary of, of a remissions process similar to what happened earlier this year um and the there was also he was also speculating about the reasons uh why government has um taken a long time or does not seem interested in implementing um these 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 the state uh, capture uh, commission recommendations and that for us um is the kind of uh, speech that judges should not engage in uh, publicly, especially um, in, in 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 an interview, uh, because we know that interviews uh, tend to take a life uh, of their own and is not um, the kind of controlled environment that judges are used to. Hen- hen- hence the work. reason why we're having this conversation. So exactly. y- you're suggesting then that the remarks potentially impact the perceived impartiality and independence of the judiciary or is that taking it too far i think look we know that perceptions matter and we know that um chief justice zonda has come under fire from uh the self-interested uh sectors of society um for his role in the commission uh but we think that these remarks do uh have a potential to um, to give uh, credence to the perception of him uh, being politically partisan. And that should be avoided at all costs. Judges should not only be impartial, but should be 
seem to be impartial um, and because they rely so much on public confidence. You'll concede that it's difficult to walk something like this back. Uh, should he leave it alone or do you expect a clarification? So I think that the only thing that he can do now is to exercise restraint in future, right? Because there's no point trying to walk it back because that is only going to um, prolong uh, the scandal um, and p- p- uh, potentially make it even more difficult. And so the the, the, the best show um, of, of, of kind of his acceptance that there is a line um, would be uh, change, change behavior going forward. We do know that there is uh, animosity between the Chief Justice and the former president. Do you think that the comments could realistically impact the outcome or the proceedings of the pending corruption trial against Jacob Zuma? I don't think so. I think, uh, obviously, that the judges sitting in that case are independent of the Chief Justice and of any other influence out there. But I do think that they um, these comments give credence um, or, 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 or lend ammunition to what has been a persistent claim uh, by President Jacob Zuma that the entire judicial system is biased against him um, and he's likely to point to this as, 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 as evidence. But highly unlikely to affect an outcome, though. Highly unlikely. But again, it's not about actualities. Um, that's 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 the difficulty is um, we can't help we all all we can do is shape perceptions um, of course we can't control outcomes but perceptions ultimately matter it's a difficult one but how if at all possible should the judiciary and judicial officers then balance a right to free speech which we all enjoy in this country with the duty as you've outlined to me to maintain judicial impartiality and and even decorum look there's a code of judicial conduct that sets out what is acceptable um, public engagements for, for, for judges to partake in. And we think that judges should, con, con, um, what's the word, uh, uh, confine themselves to, to that. Uh, because the line isn't clear and it's fuzzy, you take the risk when you venture out of those prescribed or those uh, permissible avenues for public engagement. And so uh, uh, media interviews are, are, are a really difficult one uh, because you do want to be open with the public about the role of the judiciary and their work, but you also do not want to find yourself in a situation that the Chief Justice finds himself now having to respond to very uh, contentious or questions on contentious issues on the spot. But that's, um, that, that's, the, that's the entire purpose of having the interviews, to look at contentious issues. So are you suggesting that uh, people in the judiciary shouldn't do interviews at all? Well, generally, ju- judges should not, um, and that has been the practice for a very long time. Um, and we think that it, it, it's there for a reason. I mean, we're, ju- we're not muzzling judges for the sake of muzzling judges, right? Um, but they, it, it serves a particular function given the nature of their work that relies so much on the public's buy-in, on the public's belief, confidence 
in their impartiality. So you've waded into this debate. So is CASAC then going to propose or is it thinking of proposing any reforms or guidelines for judicial conduct, particularly regarding public statements or sensitive legal matters? Not at all. We think that the, the current code of conduct is, is sufficient. Um, and we think that that is why we've come out to say it's so blatant, it's so, so, not blatantly, uh, but it's so clear, rather, that, that, that a line has been crossed in terms of what is currently in the code. Um, and all we're asking is that the Chief Justice uh, adhere to the code strictly. Dan Mafora, thank you very much indeed, Senior Researcher at the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. The organization Human Rights Watch says Israeli military's repeated, apparently unlawful attacks on medical facilities, personnel and transport are further destroying Gaza Strip's healthcare system. At the same time, the Guardian newspaper in the UK today is reporting that Israeli fighter jets have struck the Gaza home of Ishmael Hanye, who is the head of the Hamas political bureau. Let's give you an assessment now as we talk to Sari Bashi, who is program director at Human Rights Watch. A very warm welcome to you and thank you. How then do you classify these repeated attacks on facilities in Gaza by the Israeli military under international humanitarian law? Hospitals and other medical facilities have special protections under international humanitarian law because of the vital role they play in in keeping people alive um, during conflicts. In this particular conflict, more than 11,000 people have been killed and about 30,000 people have been injured. Um, In northern Gaza, there is just one functioning hospital that's able to admit patients. That's because of a combination of strikes that have damaged hospitals and also, uh, and maybe even primarily, because the Israeli military has um, systematically drained Gaza of the life-saving supplies that hospitals need in order to treat patients, especially fuel for generators. So, sorry, uh, Israeli military assertions or allegations of Hamas using hospitals for military purposes, I'm assuming then, doesn't wash with your organization? Look, we're not in a position to evaluate those, uh, some of the more recent claims, at least. Um, What I can say is that any use of hospitals for military purposes by Palestinian armed groups would be a grave violation of international law because it puts civilians at risk. Fighters are required to take all measures to the extent possible to protect civilians uh, and certainly not to locate personnel or um, weapons uh, in or near hospitals. Even if hospitals are unlawfully being used for military purposes, they still retain certain protections under international humanitarian law. So um, if if there is indeed uh, evidence that a hospital is being used not just for military purposes, but actually to commit acts harmful to the enemy, then the attacking party would need to issue warnings, and those warnings would have to be effective. Evacuating a hospital is a last resort because of the difficulty of people actually being able to leave. One of our concerns is that the warnings to evacuate hospitals in northern Gaza have been impossible to comply with because there's no safe place to go and no safe way to get there. So what would Human Rights Watch's recommendations be, I guess, to both the Israeli government and to armed groups within Palestine to ensure the protection of civilians and the healthcare facilities, particularly in the northern part of the territory? 
So armed groups in Gaza should refrain from any military use of hospitals and should take all measures to the extent possible to protect civilians by avoiding uh, carrying out um, hostilities in civilian areas, in particular because it's so densely populated. The Israeli military should abide by international humanitarian law, and that requires taking extra special protection to avoid attacking hospitals because of the critical role that they play. In particular, they should immediately restore the supply of fuel into Gaza, which hospitals need in order to power incubators, ventilators, life support machines, and other humanitarian uses. They need to do that immediately. Are there any specific actions that Human Rights Watch is recommending to the international community in response to the attacks and the transgression of humanitarian law, as you suggest, particularly when we see a response from the American President Joe Biden today asking Israel, and I quote, to be incredibly careful in its military moves around Gaza hospitals? Um, I'm assuming that you would tell me that kind of statement simply doesn't go far enough. Absolutely not. I mean, we've asked the United States and the other countries who are arming the Israeli military, including the UK, Germany and Canada, to suspend all arms transfers and military assistance to the Israeli military because of the very real risk that those weapons will be used to commit grave abuses. We have also asked Iran, which is arming Hamas and Islamic Jihad, to also suspend military support and assistance to uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad because of the war crimes that they've committed against Israel civilians. That's that's what countries need to do to avoid themselves being complicit in some of these abuses. Beyond that, we would encourage other countries to exert pressure on the United States, which is funding, arming, and diplomatically backing the Israeli government to stop. There are very basic things that need to happen. The United States should insist that Israel open up its own crossings for the full panoply of humanitarian aid that Gaza needs, as it has done in previous hostilities. And the United States should immediately insist that Israel stop blocking fuel shipments into Gaza via Rafah crossing. And countries of the world should demand that Palestinian armed groups immediately and unconditionally release all civilian hostages captured in Israel. You're not the first organization to make calls like that. Uh, The frustration, I guess, is that uh, calls like this are simply falling on deaf ears, given that this conflict has now got its own very disturbing uh, trajectory. So Human Rights Watch is not just making those calls. We are also actively engaging diplomats and decision makers across the world to make those calls actually have teeth. We're encouraged by the UN security resolution calling for humanitarian aid to come into Gaza. And we're encouraged by statements from some European countries indicating that they see a need for much more restraint on the conduct of the Israeli military. More needs to be done. And I would say, you know, South Africa, as a a, a leader, particularly of global South nations, has an opportunity to make it clear to the United States, with whom it has good relations, that double standards do not fly. The United States appropriately has asked South Africa to condemn, for example, Russian abuses against Ukrainian civilians. South Africa should make it clear that that needs to be consistent. And the United States cannot ask for support for, uh, con- for only for the conflicts that it favors. It needs to be consistent in protecting Palestinian civilians as well. I'm hearing you say that uh, the Pretoria government needs to step up its game. I would love that. I think every everybody needs to step up their game because the stakes are so high and civilians on both sides are paying a horrific price under circumstances in which 
this can be mitigated immediately, immediately, if the United States and other actors would set boundaries on the conduct of the Israeli military. Thank you very much indeed. Sari Bashi is the Programme Director at Human Rights Watch. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. As the world's second largest economy, China's economic health and policies can have a profound impact on global trade, supply chains and financial markets. I think that's a given. Investors are attracted by the country's massive consumer market, technological advancements and potential for high returns. However, investing in China does come with notable risks. With us now on MoneyWeb at Midday is Ian Cunningham, head of multi-asset growth at 91. And first up, why is it crucial then to understand and also take Take the Chinese economy more seriously in the current global economic landscape that we've just been talking about. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I mean, quite quite simply, I think when we look at China now, uh, China's a big economy, so the second biggest economy on the planet, and it's going to be converging on the same size as the the US in the in the coming years. So at the moment, we're sort of about 80-90% of the size of the US economy. 20 years ago, it was about 10 times the size, so it's much more important in terms of its influence from a global economic perspective nowadays. But not all smooth sailing, as you're going to tell me. Uh, there have been structural headwinds, regulatory changes. Uh, I don't need to reference geopolitical tensions right now. Obviously, that is all going to have an impact or an influence, should I say, on global investment decisions. Exactly. I think to a degree we need to separate sort of China's uh, structural challenges and cyclical challenges. So I think from a structural perspective, there's pretty clear challenges. So the first is there's a real estate imbalance, which they're seeking to manage lower through time. There is an imbalance in leverage, particularly in local governments and certain state-owned enterprises. There is headwinds from an aging population um, and sort of now declining working age population. Uh, and then obviously the geopolitical headwinds that you mentioned. But then obviously from a cyclical perspective, we need to remember that China actually caused a lot of the slowdown that's taken place in the last couple of years. They moved policy very, very tight in early 2021 across monetary measures, across contracting aggregates, and uh, well, a lot of macro prudential measures, which had caused a lot of the weakness that we've seen in recent years. But there has been a slight movement of the needle in terms of the real estate sector. There has been a targeted stimulus. Yes, I think there's been, on a broad basis, there's been there's been targeted stimulus in many different areas. So I think their key objective with real estate is it remains a structural imbalance for them. So they want to manage it lower through time. They've been doing that for the last couple of years, i.e. clamping down, causing that sector to sort of weaken and consolidate. And now what they're doing is to, to stabilize it. So they want to stabilize it to improve confidence, but they don't want to reflate the real estate sector materially. And they're not going to do a material stimulus. They're going to do enough to cause a a recovery and to facilitate that sort of a social contract or maintain that social contract that the communist party there have with the the broader population and ian interestingly there is a comparison in this next question between china and south africa there have been recent bailouts uh, of state-owned enterprises in that country that surely has had some impact on the stability and health of chinese banks Mm. Yeah, so I think the important thing to remember with China is it's a command economy and any decision or any default in China is effectively a policy decision, i.e. they allow that to happen because they control the flow of funds through all the banks. Uh, The banks are effectively policy tools from a macro prudential perspective. And what you've seen more recently is there is a leverage imbalance in local government financing vehicles on balance sheet and off balance sheet. And what you're seeing is effectively debt swaps. So they are effectively refinancing the debt of these local governments. They're pushing out 
the maturities, they're lowering the interest rates to make things functional and sort of sustainable. Now, one of the challenges with that is that will weigh on banks' profitabilities. And we sort of see because Chinese banks are a effectively a state policy tool, there are times where they will have to absorb losses. And that time will be in the coming years. So that's not an area we would seek to invest in. So Ian Cunningham, you've given us a very good overview of the situation in the country right now. So how have those developments that you've outlined uh, influenced your portfolio allocation strategy? Yes, yeah, so I think when we invest capital, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find areas that have tailwinds behind them from a structural perspective that have sort of prospective cyclical support, i.e. policymakers are stimulating economies, trying to effectively make things look better in the future. And when we see sort of a good margin of safety or valuation support. So across the last 18 months, we have been adding positions within China and, and Hong Kong. And ultimately, we've been doing that because we've seen those stars beginning to align and effectively we've seen assets on sale in that part of the world. So we've not been buying the assets that we would say have headwinds in front of them, such as areas in real estate, such as banking, for example. We have been buying businesses that sit maybe in domestic brands linked to premiumization, localization, uh, life insurance companies, businesses that sit in the electric vehicle supply chain, for example. So we've used this sort of weakness and severe pessimism within markets as an opportunity to find great companies with good tailwinds behind them at very attractive valuations. And Ian, we can't not talk about uh, China's focus on technology and innovation, and that surely is shaping its economic future. That has global implication, but also possibly attractive to investors. Exactly. And I think when you look at what China is trying to achieve on a broad basis, it's we're going to see a continued reduction in the headline growth rate of the Chinese economy, but they're working very hard to improve productivity in particular, and they're doing that through focusing very heavily on technology and science and particularly green and renewable initiatives in seeking to effectively boost growth and make it more sustainable on a forward-looking basis. One of the key reasons they're doing that is because the population is peaking, working age population is now uh, slowing. And therefore, they need to generate growth through productivity gains. That's sort of the previous demographic dividends of, are no longer going to be present. And just finally, and pulling back the focus then, we've spoken about the country's economic trajectory, and that surely would have an influence on broader emerging market economies. Yes, I think there are potentially some changes in dynamics previously in China's growth model obviously was heavily exposed to fixed asset investment, which obviously caused commodity cycles, which influenced other emerging market economies. On a go-forward basis, we actually think some of the biggest swing factors in commodities might be, say, uh, investment driven by decarbonation in the developed world over the next 10 years, which could drive more of a commodity cycle. Obviously, we see some of that in China, but what we're seeing in China more broadly is a sort of an increase in trade linkages between China and other BRIC and expanded BRICS economies. So we're seeing a lot more integration on those fronts and a lot more trade within that sort of China axis down through the Middle East to Africa and into Latin America. So there's a significant expansion taking place in trade across that axis. Ian Cunningham, thank you very much. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. 
All right, let's stay with the economy, but bring it home. And Black Friday, less than 10 days away, if my sums are correct, has gained significant traction in South Africa, becoming a notable event in the country's retail calendar. For consumers and retailers, the day presents both opportunities and challenges. While it stimulates spending and can boost the economy, it can also pose risks like impulsive buying and financial strain for consumers. It's important to understand the impact. And in that respect, I'm in conversation now with Elise Kruger, who is an independent economist. And I guess the first question, Elise, and welcome, is can South African consumers actually afford a Black Friday spree given the difficulties that we find ourselves in? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Yes, that's an interesting question. You know, on the one side, one would like to answer and say, you know, economic circumstances are so difficult out there. We've had further increases in interest rates since last year's Black Friday. You know, cost of living is still quite high and so on. But I think that's exactly the reason why we think it's going to be a spending spree because uh, households and consumers have become very price sensitive in this sort of more difficult economic environment that is also ongoing. I mean, we've had uh, at the time that we had Black Friday last year, you know, already we had increases in interest rates. Already it was quite a difficult environment. And then, you know, on the day uh, we had very good sales coming through. So I do think we will see the sales come through, especially uh, I want to, to talk a bit uh, about the, the November-December split because that is a phenomenon that has now grown in South Africa that we see preemptive retail sales, you know, um, sort of buoyant in November, but, you know, then slightly less uh, good in December. So that really, I think, has become the norm that, you know, uh, consumers out there are planning better, they're taking advantage of good deals. And then come, the, uh, come December, you know, some of those uh, festive season shopping has already been done. And then you get a less uh, you know, uh, exceptional December. So that trend, you know, have over time uh, developed and we think it's going to continue uh, in 2023. So it's it can be risky for retailers, but inevitably it will lead to more overspending and debt accumulation, particularly in this month. Yes, I think we're going to see that, you know, because overall, uh, yes, indeed, retail sales are under pressure. Now, if you look at year-to-date numbers, retail sales are down in real terms by 1.5% up till the third quarter, whereas last year, the the full year's figure was about 1.7% positive growth. So overall, it's been a difficult year for retailers because the consumers are under pressure and, you know, household budgets have had to absorb another you know, like I mentioned, you know, for the 125 basis point in increases in interest rates, uh, inflation. I mean, if you look at the fuel price story, uh, I mean, we've had fuel prices currently above last year's levels, although um, with some declines now in November and also a big cut expected early December, that could, you know, you know just drop that level below last year. And that will also alleviate a bit of the, the last few months pressure if we look at the fuel mm. price side. All heading towards Friday the 24th. Elise Kruger, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The Department of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment with the Sustainable Finance Coalition have activated the country's first tax incentive for threatened species. Let me give you some background. The incentive for threatened species and other effective area-based conservation measures allows South African taxpayers, uh, private landowners, as well as individual trusts or companies who are safeguarding threatened ecosystems or species to now deduct all expenses related to their conservation efforts from their taxable income. 
In conversation now with Candace Stevens, Chair of the Sustainable Finance Coalition. And firstly, just provide a brief overview, if you can, on how this incentive works and uh, who it's aimed at. It's very exciting that South Africa has launched its second dedicated tax incentive towards conservation. This particular incentive is quite niche and uh, quite small, but it's very dedicated towards a number of key threatened species. So if you're a South African citizen who is protecting some of our most iconic natural heritage, such as rhinos or lions, vultures and cycads, you're able to deduct any conservation-related expenditure in safeguarding these species if you've signed a specific biodiversity management agreement contract with the Minister of the Environment. How then do you expect, Candice, the incentive to change the landscape in terms of conservation efforts? So I think what we need to understand is that a lot of our key species like rhino are sitting in um, private and communally owned hands, not necessarily on state managed land. And so what we need to be able to do is to provide uh, incentives and support mechanisms for private citizens, essentially, and to be able to support the efforts that they're already undertaking. So this is just one of many different finance solutions that we need to be able to build into the space. It's not a silver bullet, not by a long way, but it goes some way to be able to recognize and provide a deliberate and direct incentive to those individuals that have already been making these um, large-scale conservation efforts. Would it be difficult then to encourage private landowners and companies, for that matter, to participate in this program? So I think that what we are seeing is a, a groundswell and an understanding that we need to be able to to move in a much more deliberate direction around biodiversity conservation. Um, and that it's something that businesses and individuals are, are realizing it's not separate from our ordinary lives. It's not separate from our ordinary businesses. And it's built into you know everything that we need to be able to ensure that we decrease biodiversity loss, but also um, secure some of our value chains, particularly around tourism in South Africa to be big five, for example, um, and this directly impacts rhino and lion. And so we know that the role of tax incentives really comes to reward behavioral change. So those willing to step up and be able to conserve these species um, are then able to to actually receive a deduction for those specific monetary contributions that they make. And that's a very good point that you make because we forget sometimes the knock-on effect, particularly in terms of jobs and tourism within that extended value chain that you talk about. Yes, absolutely. We need to also understand is the much bigger picture um, in the South African context and and many other places on the continent where as we push to have a just transition and we move out of specific sectors um, that have a a major negative impact on our climate, on our biodiversity, that we need to look at emerging green sectors, particularly around biodiversity and ecotourism and others, where we're able to create new jobs that weren't there before. And things like tax incentives directly support um, small and medium enterprises. So this one is obviously very specific. Um, It's very niche and directed towards these threatened species. But we also have another tax incentive which was put into place by us in National Treasury in 2015 that allows for a deduction in the value of land that's declared as a nature reserve or national park. And as we start to layer new and innovative financial solutions together, as we start to build 
new emerging businesses. These are the types of things that collectively together will start to provide those new opportunities in the green space. Is it possible, I wanted to analyze the effectiveness of this incentive once it's taken up in terms of the direct impact on species and general ecosystem conservation? Absolutely. So one of the the fundamental things to understand about this tax incentive in the fact that it is so specific is that it's directly linked to gazetted biodiversity management plans in the country. So conservation experts and scientists develop these plans per species. So we know exactly which specific conservation actions and management interventions need to be in place in order to be protecting these species. And South Africa is very lucky to be able to have the depth of of scientific and community-based knowledge to be able to um, put into place. And so these contracts between the minister um, and individual South Africans tie them into undertaking that best possible um, management intervention for a species. And then they receive the tax incentive directly um, attributable to that. And so when we're seeing best place conservation management for a specific species, that's going to allow us to see it uh, being safe guarded, not not in the kind of way where you uh, just have a, a cycad on your property, for example, um, and if something were to happen to it, you wouldn't know why or how to protect it in the best possible way. Whereas this contractual agreement says, if you do have an endangered species of cycad on your property, this is exactly how you need to safeguard it. And this is how it's then monitored and evaluated on an annual basis. Candace Stevens, thank you very much. And before we go, other stories on our radar. Business Day is reporting that the ANC has called for the closure of Israel's embassy in South Africa until Tel Aviv agrees to a ceasefire in its ongoing war with Hamas. And the National Nuclear, Regulate, National Nuclear Regulator is to hold a new round of public hearings on whether to grant ESCOM's application to extend the operating life of Kuburg. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon every weekday and then immediately up as a podcast. Goodbye to you. Thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.